0: To the Strange Brew podcast, my name's Jason Barnard, and that was Donovan and a BBC session from 1968, Jennifer Juniper, and I've got Jenny Boyd, who inspired Donovan to write that song. And this is one of the themes of today's podcast: is that Jenny has been around music and artists for so long, and she's done so many great interviews, and she's got a great story to tell of her own. And weave through this, we've got stories about Fleetwood Mac, the Beatles. Don Henley, Joni Mitchell, and much more. And she has a new book out, Icons of Rock. So let's hear my chat with Jenny.
1: Hi, Jason.
0: Hi, Jenny. Pleasure to see you.
1: And you too. Can you hear me all right?
0: I can hear you all right, and I hope you can hear me.
1: Yep, I can.
0: I'm really pleased to talk to you because um, when I read Icons of Rock, it's very different to many rock biographies. I'm assuming it comes from a different origin to many of the ways that people speak to artists or sometimes how they explain their story?
1: Well, you know, the original the interviews uh, that I did were 1988 to 1990. And it was because it was a PhD dissertation. I didn't even think it was going to be a book that um, this all started off. And of course, you know, we have George Harrison in the family and Eric Clapton and Mick Fleetwood, my ex, and all the band. And I was then with drummer Ian Wallace, who was going out on the road with Bonnie Raitt and Crosby, Stills, Nash, Don Henley. So, you know, there was a lot of musicians that I knew and knew well. So um, that's how it started. And it was only after, I don't know, I'd done about 40 interviews that I thought, maybe this could be a book.
0: Yeah, it's a fantastic overview of music and stories past, but also in in relation to this new edition, you have new and and current artists added to the wealth of material
1: yes so we've got Jacob Collier and um, Atticus Ross who's won many Grammys for um, films social network you know he's really um, gone was with Trent Reznor Nine Inch Nails but then he's doing more of film music now so I thought well that was interesting and then Egg White who's um, a songwriter for Adele and many others. And then another woman called Sarah Warwick, who used to be sort of very teenage, boppy kind of music, uh, always on the road. And then she's actually a three-time cancer survivor, and she changed the way she um, uses her music, and she tries to get people to write their own songs. And I used to be in her singing group. And so we have her too. So it's, you know, as well as all the others. But the the other thing that's different about this book is that um, out of the 75 musicians I actually interviewed to begin with, I was carrying around for many years afterwards these audio tapes. And I'd be moved from LA to England, from here to there. And it was just getting too much because I didn't want anybody stealing them or I didn't want them to be changed into MP3 because I couldn't trust anyone, you know pretty dynamic stuff. So in the end, I started tearing them up, which is just awful. And then in my madness, I just kept eight cassettes and thought, well, I can keep those and I can put them somewhere safe. And, you know, so anyway, so the eight cassettes that then became MP3s um, and I transcribed them all from like my interview with George Harrison, Eric Clapton, Don Henley, Joni Mitchell, Ravi Shankar, Graham Nash, who else? Tony Williams is a jazz drummer. So, you know, so I kept these. So for the first time ever, the whole interview has been transcribed rather than just bits of interviews that fitted in with the chapter I'm talking about, like drugs and alcohol or, you know, are we all potentially creative? You know, all those kind of uh, chapters. So in that way, it's different too. And
0: music's always been... um a real thread through your life back from the start it seems as well
1: oh yeah i mean we grew up in africa the first six years we were in africa and maybe it was, um, we heard lots of drumming being played i don't know but when i came back to Eng- when i came back to england I was about 8 or 9 years old my sister patty had bought some um, records and those sort of real rock and roll records um see you later alligator and you know all these kind sort of 50s songs And I just loved it. It was just like I wanted to dance and we would jive together, you know, really young. So I knew I loved that rock and roll beat. And
0: you met Mick Fleetwood at quite an early age, I think.
1: Yeah, 16. We were both 16. I was still at school. I was in Notting uh, Notting Hill Gate. I went to school that um, after school, I would go with my friends to a coffee bar. And that was obviously where Mick had seen me and told himself, I heard later, that's the girl I'm going to marry. And he would be waiting there. He was in a band called The Shanes, which is like a local Notting Hill Gate band. And so um, he would see me and coming back from school and and then gradually he asked me if I'd like to go and watch them play, Shanes play. And it was in Brentwood and it was the first time I'd seen live music and uh, it was great, a lot of R&B.
0: Was it around that period that... um your sister, Patty, you, you met George and some of the Beatles.
1: Yeah, Patty was, um, she was in Hard Day's Night. She was playing the part of a schoolgirl. And she then asked me if I'd like to meet George. I remember she was uh, staying with, um, she was living in Chelsea with sort of friends. And uh, so I must have been about 15, maybe. I went over and met George and it was just, I thought it was going to be some incredible moment. But he wasn't, he was just a regular guy and he was, you know, quite small and uh, not this larger than life image one had. And he was lovely, you know, very easy to be with. And then slowly he'd come to our family Sunday lunches and, yeah, it was was very sweet.
0: And it was such an amazingly creative time for artists and musicians. And Mm
1: -hmm.
0: you were around that London scene and going into the clubs and being around many creative people.
1: Yeah. Uh, I'd left school because I then became um, a model and, uh, and Patty was a model. And it seemed to be that a lot of um, people that we knew would go to clubs to begin with, because I was going out with Mick. I'd go to the Flamingo in Soho and he'd do the all-nighters and there'd be Eric uh, Clapton on on, um, on guitar and some of them. And uh, John Mayle, he had his band, his blues band. So I'd go to those clubs, but then we'd go to clubs with Patty and George, and they were much more like the Scotch of St. James's and the Crazy Elephant. And that's where we'd see all the musicians of that time. And there was no sense of hierarchy or fans or anything like that. It was just sort of hanging out, dancing to great Motown music. And that was, it was wonderful. Mm. And so we would do that a lot.
0: So when did you become in the the orbit of Donovan? Because obviously very famous for him writing Jennifer Juniper for you. How did that happen?
1: What happened is in 1967, I decided I wanted to find out more about life. And a friend of mine who lived in San Francisco said she was opening up a shop. Would I like to come and help her with it? So I had enough money for three months rent or a one-way ticket to San Francisco. So I decided to go off. And it was amazing. It was just then I would go and listen to all those amazing San Francisco bands, you know, like the Grateful Dead and Jefferson Airplane and was um, Janis Joplin, you know, listening to her singing. And so it was um, as if a lot of them had, there was like a sort of subculture and it was um, very different. And then um, I remember telling Patty and George about it and saying, you have to come over, you know, this is incredible. And it was incredible. By the time they came over, it was August. And, um, you know, all the good hippies, real hippies had left and gone to Marin County or Sausalito. And instead, all the um, kids had been told to turn on, tune in and drop out right across America. So they were all on Haight-Ashbury. And by the time we started, you know, Patty and George arrived and then they wanted to take some acid before they went for their walk, you know, to get the vibe. And um, it was all fine for about two minutes. And then suddenly all these people realized it was George. And they just started following us. And it got quite frightening because we were sort of pretty out of it anyway. And uh, I remember him sort of um, sitting down in the panhandle. And uh, someone said, oh, give him a guitar, give him a guitar. And someone did. And the, everyone was shouting out, going, play us some chords. Come on, George, play us some chords. So George then went, see, d e gave the guitar (laughs) away and then we started walking back to the limo that wouldn't come down um, hate ashbury and as we walked closer and closer to it the crowds just got bigger and bigger and you know kind of started getting a little bit hostile so they decided i'd been in san francisco long enough six months was long enough and so i was staying with them for a while and uh, maharishi who um, was uh, actually giving a talk in the Hilton Hotel at that time. So we all went to go and listen to him. And he wanted us to go to Bangor in Wales to go and get initiated so we would be doing Transcendental Meditation. So that was the idea. Uh, but then Brian Epstein died. And so we all we all kind of um, had to come back early. And I remember driving back with Patty and George. And as I uh, they dropped me out in London, they said, um, George said, would you like to come to India with us? We're going to you know Maharishi's ashram and I just said oh, you know this is amazing how can I ever thank you but there was two months we had to wait before we went to the ashram so they just were starting to um, open up the apple shop and they asked me if I would work in the apple shop and so I did and while I was working there Donovan came trotting down the stairs one day and I'd met him before And uh, he wanted to know about San Francisco and about meditation and all this kind of thing. And then uh, he asked me to his manager's house one day and he said he'd got a song for me. And he just started singing Jennifer Juniper. And it was I was pretty shy in those days. So um, I didn't know quite where to look because it was obviously a sort of declaration of love or, um, (laughs) you know, obviously got a crush. But it's a lovely song and I often hear it. And I hear of uh, people who've called their kids Juniper and, you know, for some reason it really touched people.
0: You mentioned the, the Maharishi and mm. an interesting thread as well, given the theme of your book is that source of creativity and legendary in, in a sense, Kesh, where you've got Donovan, uh, the Beatles, uh, Mike Love. And it was such a spark of so many great songs from that atmosphere that was created over there. And you were there watching this play out.
1: Yes. So in the mornings, because we had our own little kind of bungalow set of rooms and um, and everybody else further on down the, the track had theirs. And um, we would, in the morning, John and Paul and George would get up onto the roof of the bungalow. And Patty and I, Cynthia, would sort of sit there too. and And I'd actually hear John come in and say, Well, I didn't sleep very well last night. And then they start playing their guitars and then they start turning it into a song. And that happened a lot, you know, with um, Prudence, Mia Farrow's sister too, because she'd kind of overdone it, the meditation and had gone into a, a sort of trance and nobody could get her out of this trance. So I went in there with my flute I'd got from San Francisco and John was in there with his guitar, singing Dear Prudence, you know, or Bungalow Bill, you know, whatever was going on in the ashram that's what they made some music from or a song from. And it was incredible, you know, it's like every day they'd be doing more, singing more songs.
0: And also, you mentioned um, your former husband, Ian Wallace, and you Mm -hmm. got interviews with members of Crosby, Stills, Nash there, David Crosby... Graham Nash. One of the interesting aspects of that was Graham talking about very hard to write simple songs like Our House.
1: Right. Almost uh, seems so simple, but it's more complicated. Yes. I suppose It's like Picasso doing a painting. You know, he just needs to do one. But, you know, he had to get a, go a long way before he could do like one line. And Graham is actually one of the um, eight cassettes that I saved. So he does He's got a, his whole interview is in the book.
0: He mentions about how he's drifting apart from the hollies, why he followed his own particular path. Maybe that's another thread in the book is about where songs come from. For many of the artists you've got, they seem to just, they come to them. They just arrive.
1: Yeah, that's the bit I loved. And when I was um, writing it, there's a psychologist called Abraham Maslow, and he was the one that termed it peak experience um, in the 50s. And so I asked them all if they'd experienced this feeling when they're writing a song and songs, as you say, just come from nowhere. Or if they're on stage together, singing together, and they all get tuned in with each other. I think it was Graham that said they'd all start the wrong verse at the same time, you know, so they would get so connected. And it was interesting because a lot of people would say, a lot of musicians would say that often they got their lyrics at night they would be in a dream or just in a half-sleep, half-wake, and lyrics would come to them, and if they don't write them down, they disappear. And one person said, I think it was one, there might have been more, said those that didn't write it down, they would actually hear the um, the song somewhere else. It's almost as if they're all around us, but you just sort of tune in and you get connected with them. Yeah, it's quite magical, I think.
0: You've had your own moments of, of spark of creativity and Purple Dance. So that was a, originally one of your poems, wasn't it?
1: It was. And it was when, after Peter Green had left Fleetwood Mac, and um, they were a little bit sort of desperate for lyrics, Danny Kerwin came up to me and said, will you write poems? You know, have you got, can I have a look at your poems? And so he saw that poem and wrote that. And the other thing is um, Chris McVie and I were... Um, I think it was before she'd been asked to join the band but they knew, they weren't still in need of uh, of songs so she and I wrote one together called July Judy <laughs>
0: An interesting experience with the communal living of Fleetwood Mark in terms of all sharing a house. And again, you're there at a hub of creativity as well.
1: Yes, it was sort of crazy, but also inspiring at the same time. Because at one point they had, I think uh, Bare Trees was their album, that they had the Stones track here, recording track, actually just outside the front door. And I was the only one that had children after... Jeremy Spencer left, he and his wife, and he had a couple of little kids. But I think he was there for the when the Stones had their truck. But after that, he left. So then I was the only one that had children. So it was kind of, you know, and all the road crew would be because there were like three floors and they'd be like coming in and out. And it was sort of madness. But then you'd also hear in the rehearsal room just this incredible, beautiful music coming out and Danny singing and, you know, everyone joining in.
0: Mm. And you were there from the UK to the US and the permutations of the group as they evolved, band members came and went. They had struggles before eventually Buckingham Nicks arrived and, and things kind of lifted again.
1: Yeah, and took off. I remember hearing, listening to them when they very first were together and they were just rehearsing and seeing what came out of it. And uh, I knew immediately they were going to be huge. And there was something about their harmonies and, you know, the songwriters. And they, it was just like it was meant to happen. You know, it was like a sort of jigsaw finding the piece, missing piece. It was um, and it happened pretty quickly.
0: It does seem to come across in the conversation you have with Stevie Nicks about the moments where she's waiting tables and she's still struggling, but she's still got that incredible drive that eventually paid
1: off. Well, that's it. Because um, the drive is definitely one of the questions that I asked all the musicians, like what gives you the drive? And, um, And it's just this thing where they just know this is what they have to do. So there was almost like a sense of destiny there too. And of course, pretty much all of these are famous musicians. So they're not just musicians. They are musicians who actually became very famous. And I think a lot of that is the drive. It's the drive and, I think, probably timing as well. I'd like to do
2: a, a song from our new album now, which is a song from Stevie Nicks called Rihanna. This
3: is a song about a Welsh win.
0: Henley as well, hmm. you first came across the Eagles when you came over with Fleetwood Mac, is that right?
1: Yeah, I'd heard of the Eagles when we were living in Hampshire, but then we did when we – I think we'd only just arrived in L.A. and they were playing in, uh, in Santa Monica, and we went to go and see them. They were the first band. I think we were probably still jet-lagged, and we just – they were the sort of the um, – I don't know, the L.A. sound, I suppose – it was California Sound. I think that's probably what they called it. Yeah, they they were great. And it was very exciting. For me, it was very exciting going to LA because we could listen to and listen live to many more musicians than we did when we were living in, um, in uh, Benifolds was the name of the house in Hampshire. It was very exciting. It felt very buzzy.
0: And in that discussion you had with Don, he talks about moments of, where that, those moments of inspiration comes from, like the boys of summer, and it seemed to come from his subconscious.
1: Yes, but that's the thing. That's that same thing as peak experience, you know, where you just, uh, it's synchronicity. And Joni Mitchell speaks a lot about synchronicity and what part that's played in her singing life. And a lot of people, pretty much all the musicians, talk about things that just sort of appear. And it's that th- same thing where now we would call it just being in the zone.
0: In terms of the conversation I had with Joni as well, there was aspects of where she'd use the sometimes the more difficult elements of her life as a source of creativity as well.
1: Yeah. And that's one of the questions I asked. Do you need to have the broken heart? Do you need to have unhappy events that then make you write and try and pour it out? And most of them said they had in the past. I think Don Henley actually says now he's trying to change that, you know, the, to be able to write without having the broken heart.
4: I never will forget those nights I wonder if it was a dream Remember how you made me crazy Remember how I made you scream and I don't understand what happened to our love and Babe, I'm gonna get you back I'm gonna show you what i made of I can see you Bout skin shining in the sun I see you walking real slow Smiling at everyone Head sticker on a Cadillac A little voice inside my head Said don't look back You can never look back I thought I knew what love was What did I know Those days are gone forever I should just let them go But I can see you The browns get shining in the sun You got the top pulled down Radio on And look at that. We been.
0: There's a moment where Joni describes helping to craft goodbye pop pie hat and Charlie Mingus is dying and mm. it's really interesting how the sources, the different sources of inspiration that artists tap in for their songs as well and that's just another example.
1: Yeah, I I think she's extraordinary. I mean, she's obviously, a lot of her interview is um, sort of stories that she tells and she tells it so beautifully, so eloquently. And I think that's probably like the songs that she sings too, Big Yellow Taxi and just the stories. And then she turns them into songs. And then
0: given that you've got this new span in this new edition, you can also see the the shifts in the music industry and the the way that different ways that songs are created and also the different ways that the media is spread out. There's also that arc of the shift, which also impacts on artists as well.
1: Well that's right. That's why I wanted people from now, you know, more current musicians, so that we can see how different the music world is now compared to when I did the first interviews in 88, 9 to 90. And um and it's so different. And you have someone like Egg White who um and, and Atticus too, who talks about we've got Spotify now you know, we've got social media, we've got, um, you know, all these different things. And people don't necessarily have to have record companies um, be with them. So it was great having that so you can just see the difference. And it's huge. I think it might have been Atticus who said that, or or Egg White, um, if the Beatles were here now, I don't know if they would be that famous you know how what's their social media like you know how many people are following them or you know it's just the whole music world has turned upside down in that way
0: you've also had a memoir out as well mm. which reflects your life
1: that was called Jennifer Juniper A Journey Beyond the Muse and um that came out just a little while ago in fact I'm I'm giving a talk at the Beatles 50th anniversary um it's called the the Beatle Fest in New York I'm talking about both those books because they're both out. So I guess they all kind of, they kind of match up because in the Jennifer Juniper book, I'm talking about just being yourself, you know, just learning to just be yourself. That's the message. And in this one, it's more about getting in touch with your own creativity. You can listen to what they're saying, but, you know, we all have, we all have the potential to be creative as well. You just have to listen to that inner voice. So they're sort of linked in that way. They're sort of saying similar stuff.
0: So given the PhD that you did, the, the learning that you take, you, yeah. the approach that you had in terms of speaking to artists, you asked them questions that many people don't usually ask them?
1: That's right. I think pretty much all of them said, I've never had an interview like this before. You know, usually it's like, what do you have for breakfast or, or something? But um, I think because I had uh, just got my master's in counseling psychology, I was in a position where they knew I'd been part of the music world, you know, through being married to Mick for a long time, being living all together with Fleetwood Mac and all that. So they knew that. But also, I think learning to be a therapist meant there were times when I'd ask a question, you'd get a bit of an answer. And often you don't want to have a silence, you know, people get awkward to silence, but it was great because I knew when to be silent, which then often would take them deeper and get closer to what they're really saying. And, you know, it was a lot of support when the book came out. But um, I think and at the moment I'm sending the book off to many of the musicians and mick got his copy and um, Ringo was given his copy and, and there's really great feedback. I just heard from Egg White today, who text, just saying, God, you know, he feels so honoured to be part of it. And, you know, so it's it's very cool.
0: Excellent. Well, Jenny, it's been amazing to talk to you. It's been fantastic to read Icons of Rock in their own words, and I heartily recommend it. So thank you so much.
1: Thank you very much. It's been fun. Thank you. Bye.
2: Charlie speaks of Lester. You know someone great has gone. The sweetest swinging music man had a Porky Pig hat on. A bright star in a dark age when the bandstands had a thousand ways of refusing a black man admission. Black musician In those days they put him in an underdog position Sellers and chitlins When Lester took him away I'm arm went black and white and some saw red and drove them from their hotel bed sweet love is never easy street now we are black and white embracing our lunatic new york night very unlikely we'll be driven out of town or be hung in a tree that's unlikely tonight the In the sticky middle of the night, summer serenade of taxi horns and fun arcades, where right or wrong underneath oh, every feeling goes on. For you and me, the sidewalk is a history book and a circus. Dangerous clowns balancing dreadful and wonderful perceptions they have been handed day by day, generations on down. breaks. Now Charlie's down in Mexico with the healer, so the sidewalk leads us with music to two little dancers. Outside a black barn, there's a sign up on the awning, it says pork pie hat bar. up late and dancing there just like Charlie and Lester dancing there tonight
0: Thank you for listening to the Strange Brew podcast If you do like the show please consider a small donation to help keep the show archive online It's 10 years since I started the podcast and hosting fees are increasing over time. All your support keeps the show running and helps me get amazing guests. To support me, just go to thestrangebrew.co.uk where you'll see a donate button on the homepage. Thank you very much. Plus, any reviews on your podcast services help to spread the word too. Thank you.